Tail Chase Podcast. I'm Nick Mazzara. And this is Graham Scarborough. And on this episode, we are going to do part two of the Selena saga. That's Selena, right. Selena the Prairie Falcon. I believe we left off last time on the trip home from Kansas mm-hmm. after we had trapped her. <laughs> this is yeah. uh, going to be a Graham-centric episode. This yeah. is his Falcon. And while I've been privy to a lot of the goings-on, he knows it a lot better and a lot deeper. More intimately. Yes. Um, So we left off. We had just caught Selena. We had put gear on her, put a hood on her, and we were headed home from Dodge City, Kansas. Um, Nick's wife was eight months pregnant, like to the day. I think. Hey, yeah. Um, Let's see what what do you remember? What day we caught Selena? November fifth. She was due December fifth. Yeah. Yeah. So, eight months pregnant. We were rushing home because we did not want her to go into labor or anything before we got back. Um. Now, prairie falcons are uh, notoriously wild, um, and hard headed, and Selena was no exception. Um, riding back, uh, she needed to cast at one point. That was extremely stressful, trying to make sure she could cast through the hood. I remember having to pull over, um, pulling the hood off at one point, and then trying to get it back on in a parking lot. Um, but... That was a very stressful moment. Yeah. Like that like was a moment that tried our friendship. More like how stressful it was. Like Yeah. You were upset, freaking out, like not sure what to like, you know, how to handle it. You know, you've got this mm-hmm. fragile thing that you don't want to hurt and you're looking to me like help me and I'm like I well, I don't know any better. Like you're the one with the glove on, the bird on your hand, like I don't know how to help you, man. I'm sorry. Yeah. You know, yeah. It was stressful, but yes. she casted. It was fine. We made it home, and so what? Explain casting for people. Oh, so casting is so kind of like cats. Um, birds do not digest feathers or hair, um, and yeah, so like certain types of bone teeth. Yeah, uh, they'll they'll digest some, but a lot of times they'll cast it up. Grasshopper, so I've seen grasshopper parts. Okay, uh, yeah, but bones they can do. I mean, bones they definitely do. Yeah, owls yeah. will will cast up well, I've bone seen, and teeth. A yeah, lot. but I've have seen like pieces of skull. Before. In a in a hawk pellet. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I haven't really noticed that, but um, so basically the parts that are undigestible or indigestible, they will cough back up in a pellet um and so that's what she needed so after uh could be 24 hours could be 48 hours could be longer than that every so often a bird needs to cast and the thing about a hood is is a a good fitting hood that's like custom made to fit that bird a bird should be able to cast through that hood 
But a lot of times when you're trapping, you, you know, you just put on whatever hood you think fits best in the moment. You don't know exactly what kind of hood you're going to need. And because there's, you know, you're a lot of times when you're trapping, you're the vast majority of the time you're going after a specific species, but there's variability within that species of size of their head, you know, lots of different variables. Male to female. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody's an individual. So, um, but she was trying to cast through the hood and I was like, she should be able to cast through this hood, but you know, it, it just was very, very stressful for me because this was my first like big long wing. I worked really hard to acquire her. Very stressful. Uh, but like I said, it ended up just fine. And I mean, it was understandably stressful situation. You know, she wasn't able to cast through the hood, if I remember mm-hmm. right, and that can cause major problems. You know, they can. Uh, choke on that material uh-huh. if it gets lodged in their throat like it, it under it was understandably probably or stressful it's a problematic situation when that's not able to happen mm-hmm. but you know why and go into a little bit of detail there i guess they go to cast they can't because of the hood is ill-fitting or whatever the case may be it's uncomfortable on a freshly trapped bird and they don't know how to cast through a hood yet and you, but uh, so you go to take the hood off so they can mm-hmm. cast, and you have a fresh trapped mm-hmm. raptor who is not just going to sit on the glove mm-hmm. calmly cast and be done. Yeah, they're and going then to let you put the hood back. On. Right, they're going to freak out. Yeah, try to get away, you know, which is what their natural instincts tell them to do, which mm-hmm. is probably going to stop them from trying to cast. So it's mm-hmm. only going to pass the problem on, you know, to 10, 15 minutes down the road once you eventually do get the hood crammed back on their head after you wrestle with them to get it back on as they're hanging upside down. And uh, then they try to cast again, but they can't through the hood. And I don't remember yeah. how we resolved it, but... I don't know if she did eventually cast through the hood or if she did, like, kind of as I was taking the hood off, but... I don't remember I don't the details know. of it, but... That's that's why it was, it was such just, a stressful situation. It's yeah. it's kind of a lose lose thing because we're six or seven hours from home, so it's not mm-hmm. like we can put her somewhere quiet, dark. And calm, dark, so that she's able to, you know, settle in and do that. We're in a car for right. an extended period of time. Right. So, uh, I got her home. And, um, I was kind of following a a method of a a falconer who flies a lot of passage prairies and, um, basically he, uh, he instructed me that when it comes to their mutes, which is their, the waste that they pass, their urine and their poop, um, green means go. And so when you see green in their mutes, that means they're empty, they're hungry, they're going to pay attention to you, and they they might be willing to eat. So I uh, kept her cool, calm, dark, safe, and waited for green. And then when I got green, I started offering her food. 
Um, and she refused food for a week. And I trapped her at 815 grams, and she dropped down to 666 grams hmm. before she ate. 666. Now, was that the lowest she ever was? No. Gotcha. No, I ended up taking her lower than that, actually. Gotcha. But So, for you uninitiated out there, part of falconry is utilizing a bird's appetite yep. for training. Mm-hmm. You keep track of this with a scale, and you kind of make a rough estimate based off of their weight, kind of how hungry they are. Also, some different things. Uh, you can feel their keel bone, which mm-hmm. their sternum has a ridge on it that it would be perpendicular to how our sternum is. Um, and you can kind of feel how much uh, muscle and fat that they have there. That's an area that they store excess uh, fat there mm-hmm. along that keel bone. And you can kind of tell what condition the bird is in. Right, now, so if you hear someone saying sharp, that means they're thinner, and if they're round, that, that means, means they that have, they're heavier. Yep. Yep. Now, the idea behind this is you don't ever want to bring a bird into such low condition that they're starving or emaciated. No, or even compromised. R- no. Right. Because they're very fragile, and so as soon as you get anywhere close to that, a lot of times they have underlying conditions or just Things the general nature. Things exposed na- to in the wild, yeah, yeah parasites, that, whatnot. That is going to kill them. So you mm-hmm. want to keep them in healthy condition, but make them or, or uh, bring them to a, a state that they're hungry enough to work with you. Now, when a bird gets to October, November, mm-hmm. they've proven themselves most of the time that they're pretty successful. And the vast majority of the birds that we catch seem like they're in pretty good condition mm-hmm. a lot of the time. So it takes them some time, usually to get hungry enough to overcome that fear. Right. Now, I told you this is going to be the Graham show, and here I am sitting over here talking a bunch, but uh, birds' brains tend or seem to work very differently than any other animal I've been around. Mm-hmm. Or, or, you know, it's certainly anything domestic. Yeah. You know, they're not like a human where they have high levels of cognition. It seems like they operate more on instincts and uh, pathways that have been burned in through repetition. Yeah. And I have no idea where I was going with that, but... Um, well, they, that's just kind of the start into the training process, how we tap into their... Oh, that's... Um, okay. So you underlying psyche, you know, yeah. how we get them to cooperate with us. As and, we... and they seem to kind of have a few modes of operation. And the two main ones that we see are, are, are initially, anyway, are fear and hunger. Mm-hmm. And initially, fear is a much more utilized pool Mm-hmm. And as that hunger starts to grow, that fear, fear starts increases. to come down. Yeah. Now, and meanwhile, you're offering them food this whole time. Right. And they can't ignore the fact that you haven't hurt them yet. Yes. And, and so there's food there. That fear, that fear instinct starts to decrease over time through association. You know, the longer that you go without anything bad happening to them, mm-hmm. that you're in their presence the less and less of that fear 
tends mm-hmm. to be a, a part of their mind. Mm-hmm. And as they become hungry, you know, and that food is present, that overcome eventually overcomes that fear enough where that they can eat. Yep. And that's pretty much what you're trying to do with the first two, three weeks of training. Mm-hmm. With a lot of them is keep that fear to a minimum mm-hmm. and maximize the, the positive food, the positive, right? Because they don't, they're not like a dog. You can't. If they do something bad, you can't them smack them on them. the nose yeah. or whatever. Uh, it's all positive or yell at them. You know, yeah, it's they only respond to positive. If you smacked a hawk or he'd be know, like, I'm gonna leave. Yeah, they're. It's just yeah. All you're gonna do is bring that fear right back to the forefront of their psyche. Yep. And so yeah, it's all positive reinforcement, which for birds mm-hmm. of prey is food. Yep. Yeah, they're very very closely tied to food. And so. You know, it seems like a lot of people hear a bird went a week without eating. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. It's not. No, they're kind of like snakes. Yes. You know, I mean, they can gorge themselves. They can eat a big meal or a lot of small meals and then go weeks without mm-hmm. eating a thing and not be that, totally fine. Not yeah. that that's like how you'd want to do it all the time. No. and then, But it, they're totally capable yes. of doing that and it happens in the wild they might have success catch a big thing like a big duck or whatever pig out on it and then they might not catch anything for several days yeah life stuff out there for them you know they've got very high mortality rates especially mm-hmm. within the first year for raptors and that's a big part of it it's not easy to catch stuff the way they do now there are some that are incredibly efficient hunters you know we mm-hmm. i remember we caught that cooper's hawk that had a broken leg mm-hmm. that you caught banded then recaught later in the season mm-hmm. and he was just as fat if not fatter yeah catching stuff with one foot yeah so yeah, like, yeah. they get stuff figured out and they i mean they can catch multiple stuff in a day mm-hmm. you know and have more than enough to eat and other times you know they just go long time without eating their digestive system works very differently than ours so right so so yeah that's basically what i was doing um in those early stages with selena was um spending time around her talking moving interacting touching um working to decrease that fear um, while all the time offering her food, and so she could ignore the fact that I hadn't hurt her yet, but that food was there. And so after about a week, she cracked and started eating. And then that, um, that started the process. Now, one thing about passage falcons um, that's different than like a captive bred falcon is a, a passage falcon... A lot of times what they catch, not that they can't catch big stuff, but a lot of times they will catch small stuff that they can carry, that they can take with them. And so um, to convince a wild bird that they are safe on the ground and safe being approached by you as a human is quite a feat. Um, It takes a lot of uh, trust and in trust building being slow not approaching them directly maybe offering them bits of food kind of as like 
peace offerings that, no, I'm not here to harm you. I'm here to help you, you know? And so during that, that's also, you know, if you're ever, that's building that relationship of trust so that when you're out in the field and you're out hunting, um, then they're not going to just pick up what they caught and fly away with it. Or Which, it's not just passive passage falcons. Yeah, passage that, birds. Well, that's what? that first thing that I caught with Asp this year. She dove down into a brush pile. Oh, yeah, and, yeah. Yeah, and I didn't know what had happened. I didn't know if there was a rabbit in there, and she missed it or what. I kind of slowly walking up, and as soon as I get within this, you know, whatever sphere that she had determined wasn't safe, she saw me, picked up this giant rat that she had grabbed out of there and flew off with it into yeah. this brush pile. She didn't want to be out in the... It was a down tree that she had caught it in. She didn't want to be us too exposed for her and me being close. She didn't like it. So she flew in underneath the cedar tree. Mm-hmm. But I like was the, the canopy was big enough I couldn't even reach her without like crawling underneath the limbs and dragging her out. <laughs> yeah. So it's uh it's all I would if I had to boil it down to Two things, really, when it comes to falconry, it's building trust, reassuring them that nothing bad is going to happen to them while they're in your care, and second, positive association, which is basically through hunting opportunities and food. And so um, with Selena in those early stages, it was helping her understand I'm not going to hurt her, and making sure she associates me with food and then whenever we got out and started working outside it was a real trick um training her uh to come to me for a piece of food or to go to a piece of food and then let me approach her while she was on it um so do you think that i should talk about like kite training like, is that worth going into yeah. a little bit? Yeah, I so, would definitely say so. Okay. Uh, especially, you know, your family is the kite training family. Yeah, right? well, so so my dad, his name's David Scarborough. He, um, he's kind of credited with starting uh, kite training for Falcons. Um, back in the early 90s, he was parasailing. And he was like, oh my gosh, this is just a giant kite. And so he basically came up with the idea to use a kite to lift a piece of food up into the air and then train a falcon to go grab that piece of food and then bring it to the ground. And then in that way, you have a reliable, repeatable method to train a falcon to go up for a reward and then come down and then from there it's just a process of weaning them off of the kite but still getting them to go up and then instead of them bringing the food down you produce food on the ground by flushing a pheasant or a duck um, or a partridge or a prairie chicken or whatever and then the falcon comes down and chases it hits it grabs it kills it whatever um, so I was going to use the kite method with Selena. So basically, um, 
and it's evolved since the early 90s. Now there's a parachute involved. Um, so basically, I train her to fly, grab a piece of food that's hooked to a parachute, pull on the parachute, and then the parachute gets deployed, and then she floats down. Then it's just a matter of me approaching her, getting her clipped up for safety, um, and then when she's done, I offer her a piece of food on my fist. She hops up to my fist, and she eats that, and then I hood her, and we go home. And then, and that's the end of the day. So, um, at first you start with a low height, uh, you put the food at maybe 10 feet, or even eye level, and then you just work your way up, and, um, now the thing about kite training, especially with a wild falcon, is it's, it's very unnatural, not in their repertoire to, I mean, it just goes against everything that they've ever learned, like, you're trying to convince a wild bird to go and grab a contraption that's suspended underneath a kite, which is kind of bird-shaped, <laughs> and it's huge. So, like, they've been, like a, like, a falcon has been terrified of hawks and eagles its entire life. Big, bird-shaped things. And so now I'm trying to convince her that it's actually good to fly under a bird-shaped thing like a kite and then go grab a piece of food. Not to mention, you know, especially with prairie falcons, from what I gather, a lot of the way that they hunt in the wild is not from what falconers call a pitch, you know, which mm -hmm. is going up to a height, you know, anywhere from five, 600 feet to 2,000 plus yeah. feet. Uh, and then coming down from above and whacking something. Right. Instead, they don't. I'm sure that they do that in the wild to some yeah, degree. Yeah, it happens, but yeah. that's not their uh, typical MO. Right. right. So, from what I've heard, a lot of the times they're cruising along really fast, fairly low to the ground, mm -hmm. trying to surprise stuff and either have it flush in front of them or something. You know, they catch something moving right. as they're coming over the hills and in different areas. Sand right. dunes and cut banks and all those kinds of things and nabbing stuff real quick as right. they're coming up and surprising it. That and sitting on a perch and spotting like a flock of birds a mile away mm. and, and then and dropping off the perch and coming in at ground level. And then shooting you know, up and, into them. Yeah. Okay. Yep. So they're not like peregrines in that mm. way. Peregrines are almost built for falconry prairies. While they can make great falconry birds, um, their typical MO of hunting is is not what most North American falconers try to to emulate. It should be noted that there aren't a ton of guys that are flying prairies. Mm -mm. There's there's there are there's definitely some. There's a handful. Yeah. Graham likes prairies because he likes suffering. <laughs> there yeah. are, there are far <laughs> superior birds out there. No, I'm just kidding. No. no, there's there are there are lots of different. There are bigger, that, faster birds out yes. there. Yes, yeah. Uh, well, one of the things that I was reading recently mm -hmm. is that when people may or may not know this, but the peregrine falcon was in a major crisis back mm -hmm. in the 1940s mm -hmm. and 50s uh, when DDT. Mm -hmm. was uh, introduced as a pesticide. It uh, 
led to thinning of the eggshells mm. in the peregrine nest, and I think it actually was linked to some mortality in the adults as well. Oh, it wasn't okay. just the thinning of the eggs, if, if I'm correct. Okay. There, was, there was some mortality linked to it as well. Anyway, um, and the big same, thing was the eggshells. The eggshells, right. That yeah. led to major population level declines. It mm-hmm. wasn't just a localized thing. It was country-wide, nation, or continent-wide, mm-hmm. that we were having issues with peregrine decline. When that happened, one, falconers and a lot of conservationists stepped up and did a ton of incredible work and saved the peregrine falcon. Mm-hmm. Through captive breeding. Through captive breeding, right. And the other thing, it became that one of the more common birds used in falconry was unavailable for falconry. True, yeah. And so prairies... They kind were, of became the workhorse. Right. They yeah. were the go-to for a long time, mm-hmm. which they've kind of dropped off in popularity in recent years because... Especially with captive breeding. Yeah, because yeah. captive breeding has become much... I mean, it was pretty much non-existent up until... It was. It was, it was non-existent. non-existent. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. Until they started trying to reintroduce peregrines, right. it was not a thing. Right. It, it maybe over east. I'm not sure, but definitely not in the U.S. No. And I don't think anywhere in the world that it was a it was a a commonplace thing, if it even existed at all. Okay. Yeah. Uh, from what I was reading, anyway. Mm-hmm. Now again, I could be wrong, but. So they were pretty popular for falconry at one point in time, but they've kind of fallen off the map, for lack of a better term, because from what I've seen about them is they are a more difficult falcon to deal with. They, they're, what's the word, irascible. They're uh, kind of unpredictable, mm-hmm. kind of temper, very, very temperamental. temperamental yeah. <laughs> Yes, very temperamental, and it seems like <coughs> what you would look at as either a small mistake or not even a mistake at all mm-hmm. with, with handling another bird was just like a, you know maybe even a difference of opinion on handling things turn mm-hmm. can turn into a major problem down the road, mm-hmm. or you know, it's just like man that's that's a problem yeah like you can't do that yeah you know it's little things yeah uh, uh, a guy who flies them a lot told me. Um, he was like, it takes once to show him something, twice to teach him something, three times to cement something. Yeah. So basically you get three chances to make a mistake. And if you make the mistake three times, forget about it. Yeah. But they are hard-hitting birds. That is that is their claim to fame. Yeah. Is that they hit ridiculously hard. And, I mean, it, if you And they're make... not that big. No, no. Like they're, a, a, I mean, th- there are freaks out there that are like nine hundred grams and stuff, and yeah. imprints. But most of them are like seven hundred, seven hundred thirty grams. Seven hundred thirty grams, I think, is a good size female prairie. They they're not they, big. They hit stuff like this is a commonplace thing. They hit stuff hard enough that they cause internal bleeding on themselves. Yeah. That they're like like whacking stuff hard enough where you'll find blood in their mutes the next day. Yes, yeah, it happens. Yeah, like um, and not to say that other falcons can't have can't or don't have that happen no. too, but like 
prairies hit stuff hard. Yeah. And, they, and part and of it is they have they to. They kill smaller. stuff. Yeah. In in the stoop, they hit it so hard that the thing falls out of the air, stone dead. And they're a challenge. And so, one of the things that you know goes along with the Selena story is I've got to watch Graham really come into his own as a falconer. You know, we're, we've I've been a falconer a little bit longer than he has, but I've kind of mostly flown red tails for one reason or another, and a, a lot of that I've, I've come to to realize that I have a lot of other hobbies in the outdoor world that take up some of my time. And in pursuing those, you know, I haven't given falconry everything. Mm -hmm. You know, I I just haven't. Now, that's not to say that I haven't spent a lot of time training birds, a lot of time hunting, and a lot of time, you know, working towards honing that craft because I have uh, and I thought that you know me bow hunting and me doing other stuff like duck hunting and all that didn't really take away from it much but this past season I really kind of set everything else down and kind of noticed how much smoother the season was when I flew you know five six days a week rather than two to four Mm-hmm. And you know, just it's a it's a different animal whenever you make the time for falconry, and Graham yeah. has done that, mm-hmm. and has successfully, as you know, you will find out listening to the Selena saga, flown one of the more difficult birds to fly in North America. Yeah, and so it's been really rewarding for me to watch him come into his own as a falconer and find that success. And fine-tune those habits that go along with falconry that you are necessary to have a made prairie falcon. Yeah. Well, that's very kind of you to say. Uh, uh, I don't know. I mean, it's kind of a blur. Like, I feel like I'm... I don't know, like I'm supposed to tell you the formula now. Well, it's just like just like anything worth doing in life. There's more than one way to skin a cat. Yeah. And That's for sure. You can't you there's no rigid formula that you need to follow with any bird. They're all individuals. Every yeah. situation is different and calls for a different response. Mm-hmm. You know, where one one instance you need to run up to the bird and get up there quickly and handle the situation in another mm-hmm. instance if you do that the bird is in the next county 10 mm-hmm. minutes later yeah so you know you can't apply some formula to it you know it's that's one of the things that has made it so enjoyable is because it is an intuitive thing and it is it takes patience and practice to get it right yeah. not to say that you haven't had some hiccups along the way oh for sure yeah uh, for sure. With some uh, retrapping maybe involved. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, well, the first time, the first time, so Selena, um, things were going well. She was going up to the kite, grabbing the bait, coming down. Things, things were good. Um, and then one day, um, 
she went up, grabbed the bait, came down, and I was running over to be close to her when she got down to the ground, and the parachute caught on a corn stalk right above the ground and popped the food out of her foot. Now, a lot of birds would, like, stop, land on the ground, and come back to it. Not this passage prairie falcon. She hightailed it for the next county. Like, she just took off and didn't look back. I'm, like, you know, my jaws on the ground. Like, what's going, you know, what just happened? I'm swinging the lure, blowing the whistle. She's not even giving me a second look. She's just making a beeline for the horizon. So my dad and I jump in the truck, get the telemetry going, and chase her. Mm, you know where my training field is? How far do you think that is to Corning? <laughs> uh, I don't five know. miles? Yeah, I'd say, I was going to say like five or six. Yeah, so we Which drive... Which is a drive... I cross country. Actually, I actually know well. Yeah. So, um, I don't know for, why, but birds for, seem to end up there. Yeah, for this exact reason. Whenever I was just getting into falconry, your dad had a, a couple hybrids. Mm-hmm. And the exact, well, not the exact same thing. Had a hybrid, turned it loose, mm-hmm. when it started going up to the kite, ringed up, and then left. Just disappeared. And we yeah. ended up in Corning. Yeah. <laughs> catching the thing. Or he, he called it down to the lure in the headlights of the truck. Yeah. In Corning. Yeah, I don't but, know. I don't know what it is about Corning, but birds like it. So and I like that was one of the most memorable experiences of my lifetime. Yeah. Driving seventy miles an hour through a cornfield with ho- holding telemetry out, mm-hmm. which I've never used before at this point in time. Mm-hmm. So your dad's like yelling at me, trying to like tell me how to work the thing, and I'm yeah. out holding it out the window, hitting my head on the roof as we're driving. And this is like this is like antique telemetry equipment. This is a uh, MN10, which is a, a old uh, aluminum Yagi, like a three prong antenna. Maybe three feet by three feet. Mm-hmm. Really cumbersome, obnoxious thing. I mean, it was a godsend when it like came out, but it's it's archaic in terms of yeah. telemetry now. Um, <laughs> yeah. So so we wind up in Corning, um, and I'm like at this point I, I've got my safety pigeon, which is which is for these kinds of situations and I'm tossing that thing in the air and Selena comes in and she smacks it a couple times and then lands in a tree and she won't come down until I leave until I'm like well away from the pigeon so she comes down (coughs) and I'm like 50 yards away and she's eating on the pigeon now in these situations it is extremely precarious because you're in a hurry to get the bird back because if they eat enough to fill their crop especially when they're already feeling a little bit goosey they got no use for you anymore all right and they're probably going to be harder to get back the next day because they're still sitting on that crop from the night before right so it's like remember how we talked about the those two pools, you know, the, the fear and mm-hmm. the hunger. Right. And it's like, 
when that hunger's at the forefront of their mind and that fear has diminished from time, you know, it's a lot easier to work with that bird and get mm-hmm. it back in those instances that are uncommon, you know, or, mm-hmm. uh, that bird. Strange and foreign. Yeah, strange and yeah. foreign, exactly. So, but in those strange and foreign situations, that bird, that fear starts bubbling up. Mm-hmm. And especially, like they you're saying, yeah, yeah, right. And w- when they get food mm-hmm. and that food, that hunger becomes less and that fear is still kind of there because this is a different situation that I've seen this person in before, mm-hmm. which can be as much as you wearing a different hat <laughs> yeah, or having a different face. <laughs> like you, like you wear the exact same clothes. Like mm-hmm. they have facial recognition, like certain yeah. birds. Yeah. You shave like, your beard off and they'll look at you differently. Yeah. Or yeah. like a, a, literally a different person. You'd be wearing the same clothes. Yeah. And you go to pick up the bird and it's like, I've never seen you. Now, most birds are not that way, but mm-hmm. some really don't like different people. Mm-hmm. So. So you're trying to manage that. Yeah. Timing. It's it's like, hurry and get in there before she eats too much. But if you rush them, you'll spook them. You know, you have to. It's, it's this like, it's like the slowest race <laughs> ever that is an apt description yeah it's making in which is which is trying to get close to your bird on while they're on a kill or on food oh man so it's one of the most stressful things you can do because you're trying to look unassuming like you're not you like, don't walk straight at them. You don't make eye contact. Yeah. You don't look them in the but face. All the while, you're trying to watch them, gauge their temperature based off of their body language, mm-hmm. and see like, okay, what can I get away with this? Like, do I need to mm-hmm. slow down? Can I go like, can I go a little quicker because I mm-hmm. need to get there? It's mm-hmm. like, like, like you said, you're the slowest on, all race, of your senses are operating at maximum capacity. Yeah. That, that's so, like that. I'm a big fan of that safety pigeon, even with red tails. Yeah, like I, it has saved my skin times where it's like stuff goes awry. You know, you just mm-hmm. you're in a field and somebody's dog shows up and it totally freaks the bird out. They're not used to having that color dog in the field or a dog in the field at all, mm-hmm. and they go to leave. And normally, you know, they're made to the lure in every situation that you've been in the past and they just totally refuse it and not mm-hmm. only refuse it but you come close and they go to leave mm-hmm. it's like so not only do they not want to come down mm-hmm. now they want to be away from you mm-hmm. and so having that pigeon which is just something that they just can't resist is mm-hmm. you know undeniably you're tapping into that instinct yeah. again yeah, yeah. so it's, yeah it saved oh. my skin more than once mm-hmm. so um so she's on the pigeon, and she won't let me get close. I got maybe less than 10 yards away from her, and she bumped. And Bumped, so meaning took left. off off. Yeah. yeah, flew up into a tree. So then I was like, okay, I'm going to take a piece of string, make a noose, like a loop, and put it around the pigeon, and then I'm going to back away 50 yards and try this again. So she comes back in. And she's eating on the pigeon. And uh, so I'm pulling on the string, hoping that it's going to cinch down around her legs. And I'm like, okay, if 
hopefully she'll just let me walk in and pick her up like normal, but I'm not going to bank on that. Hopefully this noose will catch her, you know, if worse comes to worse. Long story short, not caught. Didn't let me make in and was not caught by the noose. So she, she's got food in her system and she flies up in a tree. And it's getting, Is it like getting dark at this point? It's dark, basically. Gotcha. Yep. So, uh, my yeah. So, the plan is to come back the next morning and probably plan on trapping her back as if she was a wild hawk again, because I doubt she's gonna come in. Yeah, it's not worst case scenario, but it's pretty close. It's like, yeah. You still I mean, got, at least guys, I know where she yeah, is. You still got you know where she and is. She you've got a, you've got a signal. Mm-hmm. So, like, even if something happens and, you know, she's not where you thought she was, you can probably find her again. But it's, like... It's, it it's a sleepless night. night. Yeah. That's what you've got coming. Yeah. So, uh, come back the next morning. Pouring rain. Uh, uh, pouring rain. And we get there long before daylight. And the signal is not where we left it. She's moved in the middle of the night. Hmm. So we relocate her. She's about, I don't know, quarter mile, half mile east of where we left her. Really? Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. So um, go out. She's by this little farmstead in a tree. And... She won't come down to the lure, and so I set up a dogaza, just like I did when I first caught her, in the pouring rain. She goes, we, we drive away, come back, and she's caught in the dogaza. So it's just like, back to back to scratch, back to day one. Got a passage prairie falcon caught in a dogaza. Worked her out of the net. I don't really remember exactly how the training process went from there on, but it it was accelerated. You know, she was basically back to, got her back down to weight, and she was just reverted back to captivity. Maybe a little bit more wild, Um, but basically conned me into uh, turning her loose again. And, And we have one more hiccup after that. Where you had to catch her back again. Kind of. Like, yeah. Not with the Dogaz. Right. So, with that deal, um, so we're kite training. It's windy. Now, the thing about wind and kites is kites rattle in the wind. And that little extra deterrent can be enough to make the bird decide, eh, I don't like this kite business, and leave. And that's that, I think, is what happened. Is we were flying, it was windy, she was coming, the kite was rattling, and she just kind of faded away and was like, nope. Lost her nerve. Yep, and so ended up chasing her with telemetry. She came, we chased her around, but the funny thing is she came back to the training field that mm-hmm. night. And so when we left her, she was in the training field, basically, um, in the trees, but she had come back. And so then the next morning it came back and she came into a pigeon 
and I didn't need it. I had it harnessed with nooses on it, you know, but um, didn't need the harness because she, she let me make it. Right, but uh, she was caught by the pigeon anyway, so I ended up having to cut the nooses while I was trying to. That's a cardinal sin. Get her. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Don't cut nooses that catch hawks, because um, you know they're good ones. Uh, but then I got her up to like 500 feet on the kite, um, started bagging stuff, uh, which bagging means releasing quarry. Um, like, you know, you go to a game farm and you get some pheasants, like what gun hunters use to train their, their bird dogs or whatever. You go to the same kind of place, get pheasants, chuckers, whatever, and you turn that loose. And while she's on her way to the kite at, you know, maybe four or five hundred feet, and you blow a whistle or yell or whatever, get her attention, she looks down, you throw the pheasant, pheasant takes off flying, and then she dives out of the sky, comes down, and will smack it. Generally, prairies hit things. And they'll come down and they'll hit it with, a lot of times, just an incredible force, and uh, knock it down and then eat it and so then then you're moving towards the hunting uh uh process you know you're not just training anymore they're starting to put it together that oh if i go up and then graham produces quarry and then i chase it and catch it and then i eat a big meal this isn't such a bad gig and uh and so we got through that and then the first time off of the kite, she went to about 500 feet. I was very pleased. I tossed her a pheasant. She came down. She hit it. And I didn't think there was anything wrong. But the next day, her wing was drooping. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where I'm going to leave off. Was that... That's pretty close to the end of the season, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Let's finish the season. You think so? Yeah. Okay. If you insist. So her wing was drooping. And I was like, oh no. So I look at it and it's swollen, puffy, and um, oozing. And I'm like, I, I don't know what what's going on. I'm assuming she like hit something, you know, ran into <laughs> Ran into a cornstalk when she was stooping and going to hit that pheasant. Cause... It it flew towards her, and so that's kind of an awkward position for a falcon to dive from. They kind of have to corkscrew, and so she either collided with the pheasant or collided with a cornstalk or something. Yeah. No, I got to come out and see her. See you bag before something that. for her at least I think once or twice during mm-hmm. that season. And she's hit, like hitting stuff surprisingly low, like uh, you know when you throw out a chucker or pheasant, mm-hmm. sometimes they blast off and you know they're thirty forty feet in the air, man, not forty, fifteen twenty feet probably mm-hmm. in the air, and where that gives them some room to maneuver and mm-hmm. it gives some kind of cushion below the falcon to really hit them and and keep going through them, Mm -hmm. you know, and then pull up. The one that I saw her hit, like, 
I don't know. It was right over our heads. Yeah, like four, five feet. Like, it was on the freaking deck when she hit that thing. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, it's like how, because she's, I mean, I don't know how fast she's moving at that point in time. She's screaming, coming down. Mm -hmm. It's like, how is she? I have a video of that. You video. uh, Yeah, yeah, I videoed that one. Mm -hmm. Like, how is she hitting that and having enough time to put the brakes on and turn before she just crashes into the ground? Yeah. Which I guess they do from time to time. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I, I like the bird jukes and then the bird and then the falcon misses. Yeah, yeah. They can collide into the ground. Yeah. Or they run into, you know, fences and brush, whatever, things yeah. like that. So, so how, it does like, the, I don't, you didn't ever hunt her on wild quarry in the first season. Tried to, sort of. So, took her to, uh, um, oh man, that sucked. Cause, like, I took her off the kite. She did awesome. Everything was perfect, and then she injures herself. So then I took her to a vet, had an x-ray done. Nothing was broken. It was just soft tissue damage. And he told me to um, put her on some anti-inflammatory drugs for a week. And then, or maybe two. I think it was at least a week, maybe two. Um, and, And rest. No flying. And, uh, so she sat for a week, took the drugs, and then it was time for my, uh, annual trip out to Nebraska to go hunt prairie chickens. Mm-hmm. And, for, um, for a made bird, I, I, when we use that term, like a bird that's really, like, proven itself, like, knows the game, has caught stuff, a week or two off isn't that big of a deal. No. They're going to come back mm-hmm. to it. But right when you're like getting going on training and they're just kind of starting to get stuff figured out, yeah, that's a major kink. I mean, I felt like it was, um, especially at the end of the season and, and at the beginning of a stage. It's like yeah. first time off the kite. Now, if it had been like the 10th time off the kite, it's like, okay, a week of rest and we're right back where we were. Right. This was the first time off the kite. Yeah. And and this happens and then it's like, okay, well where do we start from? You know? Yeah. So um but I we went up and just kinda harassed some prairie chickens a little bit, you know. She went up but not um you know, way downwind and um and the chickens, you know, they just made a fool out of her in that way. So <laughs> um so we kind of harassed some chickens and then uh, brought her home. And then I uh, actually took a job um, out in Washington State and planned to bring her with me. Um, and that was how we ended the season. Yeah. So, pretty darn good first season. Yeah. <sighs> I mean, maybe you don't feel that way, but from what I've heard guys talking about prairies and especially taking a, a passage in November, like, you're yeah. you're kind of planning on that, hey, I'm going to start catching stuff with that bird a year from now. Like, where you're really going to get going. Now, that's not to say that it can't be done in that first season. I'm sure that there are many people who have done that. But a lot of times, like, a prairie falcon, 
A, a passage prairie is an investment. You know you're going to have to put a good amount of time into that bird to make it into something that's going to be a reliable falcon that's going to catch wild quarry. Yeah. Falcons and so, are and, definitely a long-term investment. <clears throat> and so to have, a, at the end of the first season, like you you had her going up, you know, seven, 800 feet. Mm-hmm. Pretty reliably. Mm-hmm. You would produce something, whether that be a chucker or a pheasant, mm-hmm. she'd come down and whack it. Mm-hmm. That, like, that's a, that's not the a bad thing. The big hurdle was over. Yeah, especially, yeah. really, your uh, your first big long lead. Yeah. Like, to have, to have that as your first season, that's pretty impressive, I yeah. think, anyway. Yeah, I mean, it, it certainly didn't feel that way at the time. You know, I felt kind of dejected and beaten but especially at the very end because it started getting warm and and i tried to fly her a little bit after we got home from chasing check-ins and she was just done she was it was springtime warm she was getting hormonal which is done flying so that the springtime birds get the urge to migrate and even though most raptors don't breed that first year of maturity, it does happen, but mm-hmm. most don't. I think usually at three years is when most really, the vast majority of them start to enter the breeding population. Uh, they still kind of have that desire to, I, I've noticed like when it starts getting warm, they, my red, the red tails I've flown, they really start chasing other red tails. Either they're getting mm-hmm. more territorial or they just want to go and see what, they're up to and so it becomes problematic to fly yeah and on top of it uh when it's warm there are more thermals which a thermal is a rising current of warm air that raptors use to gain altitude and travel you know long distances without having to work as hard and so they can move in a hurry yeah they they know and they know that they're gone yeah they love thermals so oh, yeah. you know if they catch a uh, rising air current a lot of times uh, you know a bird just can't help themselves you know they mm-hmm. call it enjoyment call it what you want they mm-hmm. they do it so yeah it's just once it starts getting warm most people kind of hang hang glove up for the year yeah so so that's the end of the first season for selena yeah second Second and third seasons were fun. Yeah. She's a fun bird, man. Yeah. And we will delve into that next chapter. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Not a future episode. Yeah. So. Thank you for listening. Mm -hmm. Happy hawking.